0: But here's what happens. We offer a job uh, on the pipe scheme to someone who has got a degree. They may even have a Russell Group degree or an Oxbridge degree. And they go, I've got a problem here, they say. And we go, well, what is your problem? We've just offered you a job. And they say, well, I've just spent £27,000 in the US. It'd be probably four times that. But I've just spent, you know, and got into debt to the tune of thirty to £40,000 to get a degree. If I subsequently accept a job which doesn't require a degree, I feel I've wasted my money. I heard that and I went, what? Now, I understand that. It's kind of sunk cost bias, OK? But that means that getting a degree requires you to apply for a job that requires a degree.
1: Now, education isn't supposed to work like that. Imagine you have to go on a car ride, a long one, a couple hours with some people you don't know very well. Maybe it's your in-laws or soon-to-be in-laws. Maybe it's some coworkers. Maybe for some reason you are trapped in a car with uh, somebody else's book club. What do you listen to? I mean, there's no way that everybody's gonna have the same taste in music. Well, I have a suggestion for you. It's a book called Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. And it's one of those books where it's hard to describe how interesting it is. You just have to listen to it and realize this may be one of the most interesting books I've read in years. For example, one of my favorite lines from the book, and it's pretty well quoted, so I don't mind sharing this one, is, the opposite of a good idea is very often a good idea. That kind of thinking, that kind of orthogonal logic, that sort of creative understanding that really, we don't know what we think we know, is what makes this book amazing. And and more to the point, it's not some abstract big idea. Rory sells things for a living. He's the vice chairman of Ogilvy Advertising, for goodness sake, okay? This is a man who has shaped what you choose to buy more than, well, gosh, anybody in the last 20 years. So it was an amazing opportunity to talk to Rory. Rory, if you don't know him, you are are in for an absolute treat. He is like, you know how the world's most interesting man in the, the beer commercial? Imagine that but giggling the whole time like so interested in the world so engaging so many curious and interesting thoughts and it was an absolute joy to talk to him i know that while the conversation just wanders in very interesting ways you hang tight if you listen if you surf the wave with me you are going to get so much out of this and probably have a number of laughs along the way he's incredibly funny incredibly witty smart as all get out and frankly an absolute dream to interview. He's got a TED Talk out there, it's fantastic. I will also say he showed up on a podcast with Rick Rubin, you know, music producer Rick Rubin, on a podcast called Tetragrammaton. It's a three-hour conversation. I've listened to it three times, I know. I got a problem i like to walk and i like to listen to podcasts so i hope that's a good preamble for what you're about to see because it's going to be pretty much like unlike any other conversation you've probably heard in talent acquisition so without any further ado rory sutherland this is the definition of insanity podcast so as a technical note, uh, there was a bit of lag in the recording, and I tried to adjust the timing somewhat, but there are times when I'm talking over Rory just a smidge. I'm sorry, I couldn't fix that, but I think there's so much great content in here, you will quickly kind of go, yeah, 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 whatever, moving on. Uh, it, it's incidental, but I just wanted to point that out. Ladies and gentlemen, you have no idea what you're in for. You have no idea what is about to befall your brain, your ears, everything, wherever, however you're watching this, however you're listening to this, this is going to be the most interesting podcast you have probably heard all year. Yes, the year is young, but still, I feel pretty good about this. With me today is the one and only Ruther- Rory Sutherland, and if you don't know Rory, and it's very possible you don't, though it's it's becoming less and less common, he <laughs> has written an amazing book called Alchemy, which is about... Really bringing behavior, behavioral science to a wider audience—the the strange machinations, the the the, the quirks, the the, the discongruence of, of behavioral science to a wider audience—and and, and I know for a fact that Rory is an amazing podcast guest, so I know I'm going to try and stay out of his way as much as possible because he's got a lot of great stuff to talk about. So, Rory, I know I missed out on Ogilvy. I could talk about all sorts of stuff you've done. Can you give us a quick thirty second introduction before we dive all the way in? Yes, I mean, I suppose I've been
0: an Ogilvy lifer. I joined as a graduate trainee uh, in 1988, and I've done a variety of jobs from account handler, planner, most most of the time as either a copywriter, head of copy or creative director. And then latterly, I founded a behavioral science practice, uh, effectively, because I thought that the well, actually, I thought it, there was a, a potential, and I think there is a re- very real symbiotic relationship between the practical, but not very well classified, knowledge of people in advertising and marketing—you know, the empirical experience of people in advertising and marketing—who effectively, instinctively know that economics isn't true, okay, or certainly it's not a reliable predictive model for human behavior—and the new yeah. breed of kind of dissident economist. And I don't only include behavioral economists in this. I'd go to Robert Cialdini. I'd actually go to Adam Smith, by the way, who is much more of a behavioral economist than uh, people give him credit for. He was a philosopher, really. Um, Yeah.
1: uh, But there's 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 nothing
0: rational about an invisible hand. Let's be fair. No, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And so, you know, and and by the way, I'd also include in that, uh, I'd also include in that, you know, people like complex systems thinkers. um, Because Mm. I think... uh, Quite a lot of what is deemed to be irrational by neoliberal economists is actually perfectly rational when you consider the wider context in which the organism is operating. So habit and social proof, okay, um, two of the things that Robert Cialdini would probably have, uh, you know, isolated as sort of fundamental forces. they are In an evolutionary context, they're completely sensible. When in doubt, do something you've done before because you're still alive, so it's probably safe to do it again okay and similarly copy the people around you because they may know things that you don't and it's a much cheaper way of learning than learning through trial and error when error can be fatal you know so people who weren't possessed of these biases exited the gene pool fairly rapidly so then to to, to describe that behavior as irrational is just fundamentally ridiculous um and so you know i'd also include evolutionary psychology behavioral science but I think what I really thought was there was scope to do a bit of a Linnaean classification, uh, rather as Robert Cialdini did brilliantly, on certain common patterns that re-emerge in effective persuasion, salesmanship, or indeed behavioural change, pro-social behavioural change. It doesn't have to be commercial. Um, And I thought there was an opportunity to do a better job. Not, And this is where I think we need to make the important distinction. I think economists are trying to look for laws and there aren't really laws in the social science in the way that there are in the physical sciences. But what you can look for reasonably is recurring patterns. And so the the other reason it frustrated me, funnily enough, because I know your podcast and your podcast audience focus heavily on recruitment and, and staff motivation and so on. Um, I also thought that the advertising industry limited its talent too narrowly to solving what you might call brand communications problems or Marcom's problems. Now, they're very important and it's very useful to solve them and they're great returns if you can get that right. I'm not disputing the value of what's done, but it struck me that what is instinctively... The muscles that are instinctively developed through working in a kind of advertising and marketing context develop strengths which should be more widely applied in everything from politics, you know, uh, governance, um, institutional decision-making, public policy... Um, all the way to areas like, for example, internal communications or indeed trade communications. I think get neglected. Drayton Bird, who's the way to describe Drayton Bird is he's the English Lester Wonderman, the kind of British Godfather of of direct marketing. Drayton Bird said to me once. Uh, he said, uh, in my experience, he said communications to the trade are several times more valuable than communications to the consumer, and communications to your own mm. staff. Are several times more valuable than communications to the trade but we direct our attention mostly in the opposite ratio you know we obsess over consumer communications and we obsess over what you might call consumer marketing communications and yet trade marketing and and commercial innovation and a whole bunch of other things perhaps because they're less expensive actually and actually, perhaps because they're more effective, they're therefore less expensive, which means they get less attention. There's a kind of paradox yep. there, I think, which uh, the example I always give is br- brand partnerships. Brand partnerships are an absolutely brilliant way of building brand, making money. Uh, you know, that uh, they're kind of symbiotic. And they're so inexpensive to do that you'd think we do loads of them. But because they're inexpensive to do, your typical large brand will have either nobody or one person charged with this responsibility. Radio advertising, a similar thing. You know, it was inexpensive. It was very effective. But because it's inexpensive, it doesn't attract the same kind of scrutiny. And as a result, there's a wonderful thing, I think, which is a really important lesson about human attention, which is logically we should pay attention to what's important. But the way the human brain seems Mm -hmm. to work is we actually think important what we are paying attention to. The way political Ah, bias mostly works, okay, the way political bias mostly works isn't in the opinions conveyed by newspapers. It's in the relative Mm -hmm. prominence they give to different stories. In Citizen Kane, I think there's that great line where Kane says, make the headline big enough and I'll make the story big enough. In other words, that the importance of a story is not, I mean, if you're blunt about it, okay, let's imagine that Richard Nixon had been a kind of a a democratic president, very, very popular with liberal journalists, Mm -hmm. okay, and you'd effectively put the Watergate scandal on page seven, okay.
1: Which, yeah. by the way, so much of political journalism is is chasing what everybody is, else chasing, is chasing. What everybody else is chasing. So you have these kind of winner takes
0: all effects. By the way, yep. that actually happened because I think the story was taken for syndication to the L.A. Times, and the verdict of the L.A. Times was, "This is really of much interest to West Coast readers," right? Yeah. Okay, and you no, know, you know, I think I think that fact that what what we what we basic what makes a lot of noise gets a lot of attention, and therefore effectively is deemed important by us is in a way it is an Mm. unfortunate feature of human psychology but it's probably unavoidable as well yeah and you know so certain aspects i think of business which are actually very important for whatever reason get hideously neglected you know things like ux often is for example you know there's one thing that can can transform or break your company recruitment probably gets far too little attention um
1: and I have I haven't well, making any argument for me or anybody listening. No, 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 no,
0: no. I have a major problem with this because increasingly people are recruited by HR and by a bunch of not by professionals in the field. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're recruited using a kind of formula or mechanism by HR professionals. When I was hired, okay, I was hired by various people, including the people sitting on the kind of final selection panel, were you know, Paul O'Donnell, Drayton Bird himself, etc. There are about six wow. people who went on to considerable eminence in the advertising world. Uh, when I eventually get fired, it'll be a call from HR or finance and somebody who has no idea who I
1: am or what I do, okay? Quick question. If you could increase the offer acceptance rate by 20%, what would that be worth? Or maybe get 10% more prospects responding to your recruiters? What would that be worth? or lowering your ad spend and your agency spend by 15, 20%. What would that be worth? I'm gonna bet it's worth a lot more than $1,500 a month. And that's how much it costs to build an employer brand, especially when you treat it as a subscription or employer brand as a service. If you wanna learn more about how you can make these kinds of impacts almost immediately, check out employerbrandlabs.com. That's employerbrandlabs.com. All right, let's get back to the podcast.
0: Ah, there we go. Sorry, back again. I will get my camera to finally behave. There we go. <laughs> That's better. All right,
1: not to worry. But but, but I worry. mean, I, you know, I worry. I worry
0: right. about this to a great deal. You know, the extent to which recruitment, and I also worry that I think there's a f- there, there are a few fundamental problems uh, in terms of recruitment and reward within businesses, which is we're optimizing mm-hmm. for the average. Okay. And when you optimise for the average, you kind of optimise for mediocrity. And I think great businesses are actually comprised of teams that uh, contain a strange mixture of very remarkable people and people who support those remarkable people, okay? And I, I, worry, I worry very strongly that what we're doing there's a great quote by I think W. Edwards Deming, the you know the fantastic Guru of Productivity, and the kind of author yeah. of the Japanese Economic Miracle, where he says, to, sub, "to optimize the whole, you have to sub-optimize the parts." And what most businesses yeah. do uh, because of the invention of the spreadsheet and because of the ludicrous need for kind of legibility and comprehension at the top. Of organizations is we we're making the assumption that you optimize the whole by optimizing the parts and it's yeah. it's fundamentally not true you actually what you need to do is you need to make concessions to the parts in order to optimize the
1: whole um and i think that kind of yeah the it, it's people very who are great ve- at what they do what yeah 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 the people who are, who are specialists who are amazing at what they do having to water it down to speak up and speak to leadership about what they do you lose something and it means hmm. That genius, that experience, that expertise gets lost. It, it isn't valued.
0: No, and I, I think it, I think it is highly problematic. I also think, by the way, if we want to go really heavy on the recruitment question, the the use of the university degree as the discriminator for the first job uh, has created effectively a luxury goods racket in American higher education. Uh, and it's entirely become, it's gone from being adding human capital uh, and, and a form of healthy competition, by the way, to a form of hyper competition. And the feature of hyper competition is the ultimate prize does not actually justify the cost. I think there's a great phrase from the philosopher at Harvard called Sandel, uh, Michael Sandel, who describes the people who get into Harvard as wounded winners that they are extraordinary people in many ways, but the price they have paid to get there uh, almost makes the price... You know, the prize actually is almost not justified by the price. And I, so there's... A, now, I'll tell you a story about this, which I think is really important and really indicative. So Ogilvy... Ogilvy himself was not a university graduate. He got kind of got kicked out of Oxford, or he got ill while he was at Oxford, never finished his degree, worked as a chef, tobacco farmer, um, all kinds of things, Okay. Um, uh, he, I think he was an MI6 or secret intelligence during the war um, and eventually ends up founding this ad agency at the age of sort of 40 something. Now, partly to honor that, we have a thing in Ogilvy called the pipe. A little bit of a joke because David Ogilvy was a pipe smoker. And the pipe is very um, clearly a non-graduate recruitment channel. In other words, you're not excluded from applying. You're perfectly welcome to apply if you've got a PhD. But we don't require a degree for you to apply on the grounds that there must be a lot of untapped talent out there, which, for whatever reason, didn't get a degree or didn't want to get a degree. And we have this interesting problem, okay, which I never anticipated, which is quite. Now, there's no reason why you can't go from the pipe to chief executive of the organization. okay? you know, advertising is quite meritocratic once you're in. Okay, I mean, no, it's random plus meritocratic. Actually, there are brilliant people. <laughs> who, there are brilliant people who flunk out, and there there are terrible people who make it to the top. But it, it's at least it's not very credentialist once you're in. Okay, you know nobody really cares two years in whether you have a degree or not or where you went or anything like that. So, you know, it's not like law or medicine or one of those things. Okay, but here's what happens: we offer a job uh, on the pipe scheme to someone who has got a degree. They may even have a Russell Group degree or an Oxbridge degree. And they go, I've got a problem here, they say. And we go, well, what is your problem? We've just offered you a job. And they say, well, I've just spent 27,000 pounds in the US, it'd be probably four times that. But I've just spent, you know, and got into debt to the tune of 30 to 40,000 pounds to get a degree. If I subsequently accept a job which doesn't require a degree, I feel I've wasted my money. I heard that and I went, what? Now, I understand that it's kind of sunk cost bias, okay? But that means that getting a degree requires you to apply for a job that requires a degree. Now, education isn't supposed to work like that. The way education should work is your three years at the University of Newcastle, okay, make you such a charming and well rounded and knowledgeable uh, human being that you are now capable of entering the world of employment, okay? The actual qualification should be irrelevant it should be the human capital added that matters that's how people should think of education it prepares me for not just the world of work but you know entering adult life as a kind of more rounded and uh, you know better socialized individual okay but instead it's become effectively credentialized which is i'm paying for this bit of paper now that's that's not how education is supposed to work it's supposed to add human capital not kind of bits of paper that give you the license to apply to goldman sachs okay now there is an interesting interesting exception to this which i've heard of which is young very talented people get admitted to harvard and they get the admission letter offering them a place and they go and hawk it around silicon valley and they say basically I, I, I've got into Harvard. I don't particularly want to go to Harvard. and It'll cost me a quarter of a million quid, but I'm good enough to get in. But can I come and work with you instead? And what they've worked out is that the letter of admission to Harvard is 95% as valuable as the degree, as far as a as far as recruiter's concerned, okay? But it costs zero, whereas the degree costs a quarter of a million dollars. And it also costs them three years of lost earnings. So they go straight into a kind of Silicon Valley company doing whatever it is they do at the age of eighteen or nineteen, and they get three extra years of of, of earnings and they don 't get a quarter of a million dollars of debt but they 've still used Harvard to provide them with a credential, albeit the free version, not the co- now now the comedian i think i think it's Lewis c k but it was certainly one comedian who made the point that all those people in that sort of admission scandal who faked their way into uh, uh, to Ivy League universities they faked their way in but did you notice they didn't actually flunk out they still graduated okay so what's actually going on here no one would fake their way in okay no one would fake their way in to say do mathematics right okay because you simply couldn't hack it right if you weren't up to being a Harvard mathematician or a Harvard physicist you'd be an absolute fool to basically bribe your dumb kid okay into that position because they get found out in an instant but there must be all these qualifications which are effectively credentialism you know it's like it's like it's like it's like my faking my way into the world chess championships okay i mean you know i'm mean, I, 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 and by the way by the way i also the reason i mentioned chess is i think there's a parallel there which is academic attainment is a one-way indicator okay by which i mean is if you are good academically you're probably quite bright you're probably also quite committed you know you can focus you can you've got a reasonable degree of self-discipline okay i don't think that works backwards i don't think the fact that you are not academically successful allows you to draw the inference that you are therefore not bright or not committed. Now, the the parallel I draw there is chess, right? If you're a really good chess player, you're probably quite clever. Is it fair to say that a bad chess player is stupid? My brother's an astrophysicist, but he he can't play chess for shit, right? Now, incidentally, I don't know why that is. It could be one of several reasons. It could be we just don't have the mental facility to play chess. It could be that we just don't find chess very interesting. OK, and if you don't find chess very enjoyable, you're never going to get good at it anyway.
1: OK. Yeah. If you're not used to if you're used to wider constraints and and, and wider yeah, yeah. boxes yeah. to play in. Yeah. Chess chess feels like looking through the world through a drinking straw. And then these proxy
0: measures get more worrying because one of the things I was talking to Naseem Talib about is IQ tests are all multiple choice. Right. Because it's easy to mark. A multiple choice question has to have a single right answer. That's a particular kind of question, which is actually quite rare in the real world. And you're not testing for creativity or imagination, right? Now, a a question that tested for imagination would probably ask open-ended questions in the subjunctive tense, like, how would you X? Not what is Y? And so, you know, I, I genuinely worry. And there's a great guy called Fish, who you ought to get on the podcast. Fishman, I think he's called. I think he's a liar by background, and he makes the point that the whole education system is designed to perpetuate the idea of fairness, meritocracy and effectively a ranking order of people, okay so it's earned privilege rather than what you might call you know um so so all your privileges can be deemed to have been earned and this guy I think he's called fish fish batch, maybe I can't remember, but he says what you actually want in the world of work is diversity of opportunity, not equality of opportunity. We want lots of different people with different temperaments and and characteristics, all to be able to find a place where they can thrive according to their own talents and their own temperaments. And instead what we're doing is we're creating a kind of sorting hat, laddering system, which says we're gonna measure everybody according to the same criteria, because that's fair, but what about people who aren't very good on those criteria, but who are brilliant on other criteria? I mean, I'll be blunt about it, okay? There is a large role. Uh, can, can you swear on your podcast? Okay. Please do. Um, Please do. Okay. I highly encourage it. Okay. The, there is a large role in businesses for people who are just seriously fucking charming. All <laughs> right. Okay. Now, I shouldn't yes. say that. Yes. And, and but... I know we, we all want to pretend otherwise. Why? The the, the economist Deirdre McCloskey makes the point that about 25% of business value is basically created through sweet talk. It's the ability to persuade people. It's the ability to lead people. It's the ability to to create consensus. uh, You know, it's the ability to earn the benefit of the doubt, the ability to earn trust. All those things are psychological. And there's certain people in advertising, um, advertising producers, a few of them, who just have that particular quality uh, in abundance. And it's a valuable quality to have. It's difficult to actually select for, perhaps, but it's still really, really valuable. And a really succ- what's interesting about a really interesting ad agency is I think advertising is quite interesting in microcosm because you understand this fact that it's diversity of opportunity and complementarity of talent that matters, not having everybody effectively measured by the same uh, metrics and credentials. So if you started, if I started my own ad agency, I wouldn't fill the place with like Oxbridge or Ivy League educated kind of behavioral science graduates. I'd have some of those people. It's good to have a few chin-stroking folks around. But if you hired only those people, you'd almost certainly fail. Now, do you know of the Muir-Purdue University chicken experiment? I think I've heard of this one, yes. You might have heard of it, which is an extraordinary experiment by a scientist called Muir at Purdue University. And the, it's very easy to measure productivity in chickens, unlike humans, because it's how many legs they lay. how many eggs they lay. Sorry, how many, how many eggs they lay.
1: <laughs> the other that's one would what, be a fun that, experiment too. <laughs> that's
0: a narrow measure, because there is also <laughs> egg quality and other factors we ought to consider, you know. But nonetheless, it's, you know, how, you know broadly speaking, how many eggs they lay is a pretty good measure. And you try creating these cages of super chickens who are the most productive, and you breed from the most productive individual chickens, and it creates an absolute catastrophe because they peck each other to death. It's kind of hyper-competition, okay? What you do if you're a chicken farmer, and this leads to an extraordinary improvement in productivity, is you breed from the most, um, most productive cages, not from the most productive individuals, So you actually should, the unit of selection should be the group, not the individual. And I would argue what we've done in business is we've made the unit of selection the individual. And we've assumed that the optimal individual is optimal in bulk, in groups, at all times and in all places. And we know we should hire. We should hire for complementarity. Right now, what the HR person is wanting to do is they want to justify their own methodology by applying it consistently to everybody. But a more nuanced, complex systems minded HR person would go. We've already got three of those people. So let's get somebody. This is why you should hire people in groups. okay?
1: your Mm -hmm. diversity. of I was going to say, because that's how you that's how you got your first job. You were hired as a part of a larger panel of people. By the way, I'm not, by the way, the, the other
0: three people they hired Ogilvie and Ogilvy and the direct in 1988 were really good. And in many cases, I think better than me. Okay. But they had four jobs and I think they had three very, very good candidates. And I think they were, then they were debating the fourth candidate. This is what I heard much later had happened. And basically someone possibly Drayton, effectively said, let's take a punt on the weirdo. Let's take a bet on, you know, an outlier, which is a high variance decision. OK, rather than what you might call a low variance decision, which is having an inferior version of the other three people. And that, I think, is a really important thing, which is that recruiting people in groups, you will automatically get a degree of diversity and complementarity. If you hire people according to absolutely set criteria, you'll actually end up, you're you're optimizing for the average and you're actually selecting for mediocrity over time. OK. Because let's face it also, if you're using the same bloody methodology, this is the other thing that frightens the life out of me, okay? Well, Goldman Sachs can afford to be really, really picky, okay, and demand like that you have a master's from an Ivy League university. And the reason they can be that picky is because they are paying you a stack of money, okay? Yeah,
1: they're guaranteeing you being a millionaire by the time you're forty. Then what
0: happens when the construction industry or whatever pretends to be Goldman Sachs and tries to deploy exactly the same criteria? It's an absolute catastrophe. What they've got to do is go, the question they've got to ask is, who the hell is bloody brilliant in construction whom Goldman Sachs wouldn't touch with a barge pole, right? You know, that's the question. And, and there's a degree of game theory in all of this. And yet, I don't think the people who are, who are making these decisions, who are mostly concerned with defensive decision-making and justifying their own methodology in rational terms, I don't think they're doing it very well. I mean, there was a guy, okay, Anne Ogilvie, There are certain parts of the world where it's not easy to recruit people to work in creative advertising. Switzerland is one of them because Switzerland is so dominated by banking and insurance that if you don't work in banking and insurance, it's you basically it's a bit like the old joke. Don't tell my mother I work in advertising. She thinks I play the piano at the local brothel. Okay, in Switzerland, (laughs) it's a little like if you work in advertising, you might as well work in a crack den because by not working in banking, you sort of reputationally failed. Okay. And Hong Kong was a bit like this. A f- brilliant friend of mine called Andy Greenaway went out to Hong Kong and basically found that recruiting people from other ad agencies wasn't cutting it. And he just started recruiting people in pubs. Okay? Because, he, you know, you actually go and find the people who are interesting, kind of interesting wasters. I mean, wasters probably a bit unkind. I think, you know, but you get my point. They were all outliers. They don't fit. They don't look the you basic criteria. Know, they, 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 they were, they yeah, were basic yeah. misfits. It then turned into one of the most successful creative departments in the world, okay, for quite a few years, and yet nobody thought, "Let's replicate that." Maybe Andy's onto something. You know, as soon as the whole thing got a bit more fashionable, they went back to the kind of tried and tested, uh, formulaic means of recruitment.
1: Yeah, the 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 effort of, of as a challenger brand trying something new is always that's where the value ends up being. Uh, Absolutely right. uh, When everybody else, there's a great
0: quote, not not ours, but it's a quote of BBH, part of Publicis, which is a wonderful British agency, Bartle Bogle Hegarty, and their kind of mantra is "When everybody
1: else zigs, zag." Okay, absolutely. There's a lot of value there. So I want to one of the questions I want to unpack with you because I having you know it's in the book, it's in a couple of different podcasts and interviews you've had, is this friction between optimizing and satisfying? Because I think in a lot of ways hr and recruiting applies this very rational approach to we have the best job we have to find the best person on the other side the candidate is looking for the best opportunity but they they perceive those opportunities very differently there is no perfect job they're they're they're, they're looking for the safest job or there's so many different kind of well, 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 the, motivations this is, this is a there.
0: fundamental problem where neoliberal economics meets employment economics uh, employment economics is hugely psychological And people value things like uh, stability. Well, there's a great model by the neuroscientist David Rock. I think he's based in New York, although he's a New Zealander, as a lot of the best people are. And um, he, (laughs) he, he calls it the SCARF model, which is status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, although I'd say reciprocality, actually, and fairness. OK, people care mightily about all those things, job stability, the fact that they're fairly rewarded, not just that they're adequately rewarded. OK, um, they care about status. The time I came closest to leaving Ogilvy in 34 years was when I asked for a Samsung Galaxy S12 and they gave me I was vice chairman at the time for F's sake. OK, they gave me a refurbished Samsung Galaxy S8 or something. Right. Now, someone, you know, in the bloody WPP IT department thought they were doing this great thing because they were fobbing me off with a cheaper phone that they'd already had already. And I, I basically I basically lost it because it was so insulting, okay? And so status, certainty, autonomy. Autonomy is another interesting question, by the way, which is yeah. I think you yeah. need to have autonomy within the team and within the unit. And what we've done is now it's not a case of me reporting to my team leader. It's a case of everybody reporting to HR and finance. okay? And, um, uh, you know, the other thing that the other thing I think is that business has become unbelievably tight fisted in the sense that in the 80s, 90s, you'll remember the 90s and the, the, the 2000s. You had the vague impression that if the company did well that year, you'd have a bit of a jolly you know, you'd have a good Christmas party and they'd be a little bit lavish and maybe, you know, maybe they would take everybody on a day trip or something. And that's incre- that kind of reciprocality and mutuality is increasingly disappearing. It just gets shoveled into the more of higher management, administrative recruitment of basically non-value adding staff, okay? And into the more of the shareholders. And the old sort of implicit rule, which was if we do well, we'll make sure you do well, has disappeared. Now, let me give you an example of this, okay? Um, This is one of the most worrying tendencies in employment, which I've noticed, which absolutely fascinates me.
1: The point or the purpose of employer brand is to help people choose your company as a place to work over other companies. Now put that way, suddenly employer brand doesn't seem so complicated. It doesn't seem so crazy. And it seems like something your company could take advantage of, and it is. Take a look at employerbrand.ing, employerbrand.ing, or employer branding, and you can find hundreds of resources, either free or dirt cheap, to help you understand what employer brand really is, how it really works, how to measure it, how to value it, how to talk about it, how to sell it to your boss. So check out employerbrand.ing for all sorts of employer brand resources to help you take advantage of your company's employer brand. This is, I think,
0: uh, this is, I think, an instance of two things. I think it's called the effort reward heuristic, that everything worth doing is necessarily painful which is a very common heuristic bias known in behavioral science. In other words, it's sometimes called the IKEA effect. You know, you value the furniture more because of the effort required to assemble it, okay? All that stuff. There's, and then there's what I might call just simple puritanism bias. And that's the reaction to flexible working and working from home uh, and hybrid working manifested by employers. Okay, now let me just explain this. In the 35 years I've worked, Lots and lots of things have happened in the workplace, which may indeed have been deeply deleterious to productivity. Okay, Uh, email, I think, is an absolute productivity vampire. I think it's absolutely catastrophic. All right. Uh, I think the open plan office is largely negative. I think hot desking is is uh, hugely disruptive. Okay, uh, because one of the one of the best ways of improving productivity, by the way, is giving people multiple monitors. What happens when you halt desk? Everybody just uses a shitty little laptop, right? Okay, we've done loads of things which are highly deleterious to productivity, but no one cares because the staff don't particularly like them, and they think, well, the staff don't like this, so it's probably okay. And then suddenly something comes along which is flexible and remote working, which over time has the possibility to be an absolute productivity explosion. Okay, you know, literally, we don't have to. We don't have to pay our staff so they can spend money on commuting costs. They don't need to live in the most expensive real estate in town in order to have job opportunities with us. Okay, they can have more discretionary income on perhaps a lower salary. They are inordinately happier. Okay, they waste vastly less time in transit. They save a lot of money, which, by the way, goes into the discretionary economy. I'll come to that later. But because they seem to like it, we've got to be really, really suspicious about this and go, oh, it's a 1% productivity decrease. We can't have this. Yeah. Okay? Well, if there's a 1% productivity decrease from working from home, tell the bastards to work for 10 minutes longer every day. They'll yeah. make that trade like a shot. The whole point of free market capitalism is that you find new and more inventive forms of value exchange every goddamn day. Yeah. Capitalism works by continually finding forms of value exchange that no one necessarily anticipated or asked for, but through an evolutionary Darwinian process of good forms of value exchange, broadly speaking, surviving. And this is by no means perfect, this process. There are a lot of <laughs> peacocks, tails, and elks, antlers in the system, and bad things basically getting killed off. All right. And so you have this thing, which is genuinely a technology which has the prospect uh, once harnessed properly, and that will take a few years to perfect and may never be perfected, but of genuinely affording a kind of step change in the efficacy of knowledge workers. OK, not everybody can do it. Maybe knowledge workers are now overpaid because if they don't have to commute and they don't have to spend, you know, that's what it's like being a knowledge worker in fucking Sweden. Right. For four months of the year, you spend your entire life in artificial light. Okay. Right, but, well, why don't you let those people go out in those brief slivers of daylight and do whatever Swedes do, like decompose herring in an oil drum or something, okay, right, and drink you know strange spirits, okay, and then make them work in the evening when it's bloody dark anyway? you know time now, what this has done is there used to be a very simple value exchange with work, which is I sacrifice time, they gave me money now, I would argue there are several variables, which is money. Free time, I leisure, but there's also free where and free when. Okay, if I can work in the morning, take the afternoon off, work late in the evening, some of the time. Okay, I get a bit of vitamin D. You know, I'm not a golfer, but maybe that's what you want to do. Okay, you can't really play golf in the dark. Okay. Um and um, so maybe maybe that I value that more than money. I value autonomy. In other words remember status certainty autonomy relatedness fairness you could also add things like trust um and team solidarity i, I don't think yeah exactly. i think it's a great yeah. list i don't think i don't think it's exhaustive okay but if there's another way in which my employer can add value to me without fundamentally sacrificing my output other than giving me money that seems to be an important area for exploration and discovery, not an area for a bunch. Now, a lot of those articles in the newspapers, right? Going, you know, everybody's coming back to the office. Goldman Sachs are demanding five days a week, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. A lot of those are actually planted by the, um, organizations which have big investments in commercial property who are bricking themselves yes. to use a Britishism, okay? A lot of that is propaganda. I went to... Okay. Now, in marketing terms, I would always describe Procter and Gamble as being kind of the smart, the sharpest tools in the box. Okay. If anybody knows what's a good idea, it's those guys. They haven't forced everybody back into the office. They're adopting a very intelligent hybrid model where it's two to three days in. Ogilvy's got a hybrid model where, in addition to two two core days for your whole team, that's about serendipity and team cohesion. You have one flexi day, which could be a day in the office, but equally, if you have to go and visit a client, that counts as a day, okay? And we also have something quite inspired. I don't think we're we're the originators of this, uh, which is four weeks a year of work from anywhere, okay? Nice. Right, now, first of all, Americans, right? If I were, an if, if, okay, if you want Joe Biden to win the election, okay, um, you may want Donald to win. The, I'm not stereotyping you, okay, right? But you could win the U.S. election by simply saying four weeks of mandated paid holiday, paid vacation per year. It is barbaric that the U.S. does not have mandated paid vacation. No is, other country in the world. Yeah, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. It, it, it's absolutely insane. It's ba- I think it's bad for productivity. It's bad for the service sector. OK, one of the weird things, I, you know, I go to like the Grand Canyon in August or July and it's quite crowded, but it's not that crowded. Okay, what the hell's going on? If this were in Europe, right, I wouldn't be able to get within three miles of the bloody thing for German tourists, right? And then I realised, of course, you don't get enough vacation. The only way you're going to see this is by buying an RV when you've retired and rumbling down to Arizona, okay? Exactly. But also there's too much non-productive work at the beginning of people's lives and too much retirement there's too much early retirement what you want is for people to work for longer but maybe for slightly fewer weeks each year or maybe slightly fewer days each each week okay you know and actually tapering off work towards the end of life makes much more sense than a hard an absolute hard stop retirement date Someone you must have on the podcast, by the way, is my old colleague who ran HR at Ogilvy for a time called Brian Featherstonehaw. He was, funnily enough, he's an ex-PMG-er as well. But um, he would be a he's written a book, um, uh, which you can Google, uh, which is also very, very good. And, you know, he talks about, you know, what does your career look like when you're going to have, I mean, one of the things that will break down over the next 20 to 30 years is the idea that the employer has kind of exclusive rights over the employee. Yes. I think, I think people working two jobs, which sounds terrible, and there are two versions of working two jobs. There's working two jobs through necessity, which is ghastly, but there's working two jobs through choice, which is probably actually beneficial. Um, I will make another point, which is really controversial, but interestingly, the only person who said that America should have four weeks of paid vacation was Bernie Sanders, the only presidential candidate to make that point. I mean, Uruguay, Bangladesh, you go anywhere, there's some vacation. Now, the Ogilvy four weeks of working from anywhere is clever because it's a semi-vacation. Let me explain why. Let's. My dad lives in Wales. It's only 170 miles away, but it takes about three uh, three hours to get there. He doesn't want to see me, he's 93, he doesn't want to see me for 17 hours a day, right? That's tiring. Now, what I can do is I go down to Wales, I take a day of working from anywhere, I work in the pub during the day, and then I go and see my dad in the evening without actually losing my vacation allowance and without Ogilvy losing my time. Um, One of the best times I ever had was for three weeks working remotely from Los Angeles, where my brother-in-law lived, which is absolutely brilliant if you've got a London office, because you get up early in the morning, and then, effectively, you get up early in the morning. At lunchtime, everybody in London shuts the fuck up, okay? and you've yeah, got the yeah, afternoon yeah. to yourself. It's an absolute joy, you know. Everybody should okay. actually live eight, eight hours west. Hawaii would be good for you. Eight hours west yeah. of where? where, where okay. I'll try eight hours west, west of there. their workplace. Hmm, hmm. Yeah. Maui. So, here, where are you actually in, in the US? I'm. I'm in Chicago. Uh, the greatest city in the world. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I, in which yeah, case, do is, not move something. to Hawaii. Uh, because <sighs> yeah. Brit, Brits, by the way, Brit, a lot of Brits prefer Chicago to New York. Um, first of all, because they're sensible. But secondly, because if you're used to European cities, New York is a kind of failed attempt to recreate a European city. Um, whereas Chicago is a, a sui generis. It's of itself. Yep. and It's a masterpiece. It is. Of a place. Deeply it's American, absolutely yes. Absolutely sensational. Is. I was there. Yeah. I was there just last year, and I said to my kids, "After Chicago, you're going to find New York a bit disappointing." And they basically went, <laughs> yeah. "Dad, you're such an idiot." Of course, and they kind of agreed with me. Okay, <laughs> okay. Symphony <laughs> orchestra, lyric opera. Symphony orchestra, lyric opera. You've got the best art gallery in the world, I would contend. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, fantastic public radio stations and the best
1: architecture.
0: So, I mean, oh, what yeah. more could a city ask for?
1: Yeah. I live here and I've yeah. been on the architectural boat tour every three or four years. It's just the thing you do because he's yeah. like, oh, right. This city is amazing. But this, we're turning it into By a tourism By the way, yeah, anybody <laughs> listening to this...
0: Anybody listening to this who generally goes, ooh, when I go to new cities, I don't do the tourist things. Oh, Nonetheless, to go on that architectural boat tour because it's an absolute masterpiece. It's fantastic. 100%. 100%. Really, really brilliant. And we, we were kind of, ooh, is this a bit of a touristy thing to do? But equally, I've actually, I've been on bus tours around Dublin. That was brilliant too. Um, yeah. Sometimes actually doing the touristic thing is not a bad idea And this case. Also, by the way, go to the Chicago Art Institute. And there are these little miniature rooms in the basement called the Thorn. And it's it's one of the things where I just stumbled into the basement thinking, what the hell is this Thorn? There was a lady who effectively commissioned model makers to make miniature illuminated models in sort of doll's house form, but they're kind of a, how would you describe it? It's kind of a little um, tableau, it's a, it's illuminated a, tableau. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: In three dimensions of different um, buildings and houses and different forms of architecture from all over the world from different periods of history. Okay. And you go down, the first one you look at, it, you go, oh, this is, you know, this is kind of, kind of a bit cute. And then when you walk around the thing, my kids probably, you know, that's on a par with what is it, Le Grand Jat And, uh, you know, and, uh, but um, what, what, by the way, what a city. What a fantastic. I, and no, Brits, yeah. I think, have we, a particular affinity because if you're going to go to America, go to a great American city. Don't go to some place that's True. trying to be European. You
1: know, yeah. Don't go to Vegas. Um, don't go. Um, don't go to LA. Yeah. Don't go to New York. Well, actually, actually, I like
0: it. <laughs> Brits like LA because it's so wacko. You see, it's totally unlike, unlike anything. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I like LA. I'll, I'll defend LA. Actually, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, okay. it's kind of nuts. But yeah, yeah. I'm not, sure, I, I'm not sure.
1: I'm not sure. I'd retire there. I buy. I buy that one. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so <clears throat> I want to ask this kind of the strange question, which is. When you're a consumer, you are assumed to have perfect information about, right? We Basically, go back to rationality. Go, yeah, 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 yeah. And when it come, when you're a job seeker, limited information, the information is deeply okay. skewed. It's deep yeah, it's it, and and you know, recruiters say we have this job. No, you don't. You have an opening that a hundred other people are looking to. So you have a one in a hundred, one in a thousand shot in getting to. So you don't really have an opportunity. My daughter, to my,
0: daughter my daughter is going through this at this very moment. She's very interested in uh, property development, real estate. And effectively, you just encounter the same people. And she's doing actually real. I mean, basically, if you get to the final interview, that's a win because the rest is in the lap of the gods, frankly. And it is an absurd system, which arguably could be centralised. Uh, you know, it is ar- arguably totally inefficient. For, you know that actually, what what you there must be a kind of Tinder for employment, okay? or a Grinder for employment. Just not to be heteronormative. Um, you know, which could which could make this system somehow work. You know, quite a lot better. Um, but nonetheless yeah. I mean but, companies but, Tinder does, do it but, but Tinder
1: does that by lowering the bar they kind of say look it's just a swipe it's just a date it's not a big deal but the process of interviewing is take a day off work you know it is it, mm. and, and the ultimate choice is life changing whereas just going on a date just going on a date choosing a job is a re- huge and, uh, decision so,
0: so to get back to your thing about satisficing versus optimizing which is a really interesting question which is do you choose the thing that's on average optimal or do you choose the thing that's low variance and it's a really important distinction which economists have completely ducked because they make the assumption that everybody's trying to optimize because when you have perfect information you can optimize okay well sort of thought of okay well, even then okay i'll debate that even, even under those circumstances but the question is the the example i always give of satisficing versus optimizing okay is if I'm travelling to the airport, Gatwick, which is about, London Gatwick is about 30 minutes drive away, 25 minutes drive away from me. I actually take the slower road that takes 35 to 40 minutes, because although it's slower on average, it's not as good on average, it's less likely to be catastrophic where I miss my plane. Whereas if I take the, what you call the freeway, the motorway here, it's 90% of the time it's faster and better. On average, it's better. But if a truck, uh, I'll, I'll translate it to American. If a semi-jackknife's, okay, at Clackett Lane uh, or at Junction 6, okay, um, uh, then it's, it, it, it's, it's basically I'm going to miss my plane. There, there's, there's no off-ramp. There's no escape. Uh, the, you know, there's no optionality. And so I deliberately choose ignore my sat-nav and choose the, on average, inferior route for greater optionality and lower variance. I might be 10 minutes late every time, but I'll never be an hour late. I can just turn off and go on the back roads, okay? Now, in a similar way, quite a lot of employment, we're, we're assuming that employment's about optimality. But quite a lot of it is actually, is this person basically okay? Now, one thing that's always kind of, absolutely frowned on is getting jobs through recommendations but recommendations are a very good way of satisfying. it does not mean you have the perfect candidate because the perfect candidate is probably living in Bhutan okay and you wouldn't be able to find them but the fact that one of your existing employees is prepared to give their sanction to a friend or a colleague of theirs is a pretty good indication that they're not in the they're not in the mm-hmm. danger zone I mean, yeah. I, I actually know this from personal experience, which was I had a friend who was a brilliant mathematician, but was borderline alcoholic. And he was kind of out of work. And friends of mine who worked in banking said it's a bit of a tragedy, really, because I could get him a job in a heartbeat, given his mathematical ability. But I can't take the risk because if I recommend him and he, you know, basically, you know, pukes in a waste bin or something, right? Okay, I'm left looking like an idiot. And so using that kind of reputational sunk cost of an existing employee to find future employees isn't actually an irrational thing to do. It all depends. Calling things irrational is very, very dangerous unless you know exactly what the person is really trying to do. And most employment is not actually a quest for perfection. It's a quest for someone who fits in with the team, who is likable, you know, in other words, who presents no um, no potential for catastrophic downside, if you like. Interesting. And this is yeah. the argument I always make about why McDonald's is the most successful restaurant in the world. It's not the most successful restaurant in the world because it's a really good restaurant. I know they're your local employer in Schaumburg? They're headquartered in Chicago, yeah. aren't they? The McDonald's Corporation. Yes, they are. Um, but it's not, you know, you don't take someone there on a date, right? But... At the same time, right, You McDonald's is not very, very good, but it's incredibly good at not being bad. And McDonald's is basically the satisficer's meal of choice. You know, it's always pretty tasty. It's always fresh. The loo's always work. The prices are always fair. And I never get ill, you know. I, I mean, no, you, I, I've never been ill. I've been ill eating at michelin Star restaurants quite frequently, in fact, actually, but I've never been ill eating at McDonald's. So if you look at the absence of negatives, it's a different equation from looking at the optimization of positives.
1: So I mean, Google has famously for a long time, they got so many applications that they literally only looked at applications that had a reference attached to it. So Interesting. clearly, yeah. Just, and that was more of a, I think, a more defensive mechanism because they were just inundated with every, everybody who could spell HTML said, I want to work at Google. I want to work at Google.
0: Got it. Of course, of course,
1: of course. Yeah.
0: Now, they've also got to ask some interesting questions because one of the things that Bill Gates admitted about recruitment when Microsoft grew is he said, when I started in business, I thought that every problem was just effectively something to be submitted to raw brain power. And I then discovered there were these whole parts of business like sales and to an extent marketing where different qualities come to the fore. You know, actually, people who are very, very clever Unless this is one interesting thing, unless you study the social sciences, often find things like marketing very, very frustrating, because if they've studied the hard sciences, they hate open-ended questions. And marketing is full of open-ended questions. You know, There isn't a single right answer. And for a lot of people who've been through the education system and where we've selected people for winning arguments, not necessarily for solving problems, find that environment absolutely maddening they have to be told exactly what to do.
1: So if you had a blank canvas on which to rethink hiring it, you know, for example, Ogilvy, I mean, you know it pretty well. Yeah. Um, what, what would you change? What would be different?
0: Uh, I definitely have a few wildcard channels. I'd hire in groups, I'd be very, very cautious in terms of diversity and inclusion. I'd be very, very cautious of things. I would accept that there are certain things that are biased, okay, uh, which are inevitably biased. Like if Google's practice of you need a reference. Well, that's pretty unfair to people in Baluchistan. Baluchistan doesn't exist anymore. So I behave like a colonial-era Englishman. But, you know, <laughs> you've got to be very careful of those. And then take things that work understand the biases present in those and correct and compensate i think that's that's a really important thing which is there is no single right way to do this and we often come down to a single right way because the single right way seems fair okay because we're applying the same criteria to everybody but you don't want to apply the same criteria to everybody because you end up with identical people now there are cases i was talking to someone about this who said that say general electric did have an absolutely monolithic recruitment policy. You know, it was the opposite of diversity in one sense, in that I think it was people who'd come from relatively humble backgrounds who'd done well academically. And there was an advantage to that homogeneity in that, as he said, those guys could finish each other's sentences. They understood each other completely. And so, you know, there are environments, possibly engineering environments and others, where you want a degree of homogeneity.
1: But, but that's an that exploitation, ex, exploration question. You're i over-invested not, in, the ex, one, in the exploitation one of, the
0: of that. One of the most beautiful distinctions, because the explore-exploit trade-off is not actually a trade-off. It's always called a trade-off. It's actually a yin and yang thing where you actually need to optimize for the opposites. Okay. It's similar to Nassim Taleb's concept of the barbell strategy where you optimize for the extremes. You don't optimize for the average okay and you might argue for example uh, in an advertising context a great friend of mine called colin nimick said S- one thing makes an advertising agency great which is great creative people great account people you know great you know um that makes a difference he said what makes a great advertising agency he said isn't necessarily those people it's the elves I said, what the hell do you mean by elves okay okay and he said well you go away in a great advertising agency, you've got a pitch the following morning and you say to make for a bit of pitch theatre, we want the pitch room to be made up like a teenager's bedroom. OK, now, if you've got great elves in the agency, and there's no job description of elf. You go away to get a good night's sleep before the pitch and you leave the agency at nine o'clock at night, knowing that when you come in at eight o'clock in the morning, it's going to look like a teenager's bedroom. It's going to be fantastic. OK. And in a, in a, in an also ran agency, you'll either have to stay all night to bully the elves to actually do a good job. Okay. Or you come back and you go and it's a kind of half-hearted thing with a couple of Oasis posters from 1990. You know, you know what I mean? You know, it's kind of like a half, half-cock job. Yeah, and so, yeah. So the elves really are the ones agency. who bring the magic. The, the, the elves, are in some ways, the people, as exactly as he put it, they're the ones who actually bring the magic. And no one necessarily recruits for elf, el- el- elvishness. But it is, it. you know, there are all these qualities. What's so nice about Mad Agency and Microcosm is if you get it right, it's an extraordinary kind of diverse group of people. I mean, cr- great creative people will be literally Ivy League English graduates down to people who are, you know, you know, speak hard Brooklynese, right? Not that you can't be both. I'm not, you know, I'm not making a, a, a false dichotomy there. But I mean, genuinely, a you know, great creative talent can come out of both kinds of people. And it's kind, of, you know, it's a bit. of The music industry, I guess, It's probably a bit the same. You know, film industry is probably a bit the same, actually. Um, but it's it, that's partly what makes it nice that it it, it isn't really about homogeneity because a homogeneous agency wouldn't do a very good job.
1: So I want to be cognizant of time do you have 2 second 2 minutes to answer one last question of course I do and the explore exploit trade off let's not
0: forget this it's not a trade off that there is a complementarity between exploiting what you already know and exploring what you don't and a perfect example of where people understand the explore exploit trade off would be detectives cops okay part of your job is acting on what you already know part of it is investigative and the investigative part makes very rational reductionist people very uncomfortable because it involves, you know, listening to anecdotal information, the word on the street, uh, tiny little trivial Sherlock Holmesian details, which of themselves mean nothing, but tell you where to investigate next, or tell you where to hypothesize, where to direct your attention, where to direct your imagination. So I'll give you two stories about this. Um, there's the dog that didn't bark in the night from the Sherlock Holmes story, The Silver Blaze. Now that fact has no evidential value, okay? You can't arrest someone because their dog didn't bark, but it does tell you to direct some suspicion towards the possibility of an inside job because if it had been an outsider stealing the racehorse, the dog would have picked up on it, okay? The dog that didn't bark in the night. There's a famous case where they caught uh, a multiple serial killer in Yorkshire called the Yorkshire Ripper. And one of the things the cops noticed that was odd that just caused them to pay further attention is i i'm not really in that milieu but apparently if you pick up bradford prostitutes in cars you tend to park with the car facing in inwards so nobody can see what's going on in the back seat okay and this guy was effectively doing this but parked outwards as if to make a quick getaway now again That has no evidential value. You can't secure a conviction. You can't sentence someone to 25 years to life for parking in a funny way, okay? But those kind of little bits of nuggets of anecdotal information are all you have to work on. And that's what happens when you practice explore rather than exploit. With exploit, you've got hard data. With explore, you've got fuzzy data. And to some extent, you have to use a mixture of imagination and instinct to direct your attention and people who like accountants who love exploit see explorers as a waste of money it's part of the overall process okay yes it has no evidential value yet but it's how you actually get to a place where you can actually exploit and so it's not a trade off it's actually a, a a complementary ecosystem of opposites it's it's yin and, yin and yang effectively yin and yang sorry Yeah. No.
1: But anyway, sorry, I've got two more minutes for questions. I must do this. Yeah. Okay. And the question is very simple. Is there a challenge that you could give the audience? remember thinking these are recruiters, talent acquisition professionals, employer branders, people tasked with bringing in the best talent possible uh, as quickly as possible, as effectively as possible. Is any kind of challenge you would give them?
0: Love it. I've got one tip, which is a tip I give everybody in every category. Look for the best in a group, in a category that's undervalued. Okay. Now, in music, it's country music or heavy metal, both of which are categories which are widely despised, but the best examples of it are as good or better than anything else. Okay. In alcoholic drinks, it's sherry, right? Not a respectable category. The very best sherries are. Literally, literally eight percent of the price of good wine, and yet it's it's a symphony orchestra in a bottle. Okay, um Chicago. Okay, is a, would be an example. Move to Chicago, not New York. Okay, yeah, uh, would, be, would be would be would be one of my recommendations. Okay, so go and find a category that's a number two, and find the number one people within it. That's that's my tip. Yeah. Amazing. By the way, you'll also Rory. you'll also then get right. diversity. Diversity is a byproduct of that activity, by the way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're bringing people from different backgrounds, from different experiences, from different all of it. And that makes perfect yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Rory, G- it's been an system. absolute pleasure. Yeah. Rory, it's, it's been an absolute joy. pleasure. I want, to let, I want to let you get off to do what all the rest of the things you do. Uh Obviously, if you uh, watch his TED Talk, watch Rory's TED Talk. It's amazing. It, is, it's, it encapsulates so much of the stuff that we kind of wandered around here. But uh, Rory, is there a, a way people could get in touch with you if they felt the need and yeah. the desire um, to Twitter, to Twitter Twitter
0: is my, I'm obviously on LinkedIn, Rory Sutherland at Ogilvy, um, mm-hmm. and so I'm delighted to be followed and connect there. But I'm also on Twitter as at Rory Sutherland, which is my kind of go-to sharing platform. Fantastic. Rory, thanks Thanks. again. And have an amazing weekend. Absolute (laughs) pleasure. You You two have a great weekend.
1: You're bound (laughs) to because you're in exactly the right place.